Welcome to the Seafood Matters Podcast. I am your host, Jim Cowie. In each episode, we'll dive into the world of seafood, and by chatting with fishermen, fishery scientists and seafood chefs, we'll highlight the importance of seafood in our daily lives, economy and environment. Whether you catch your own seafood, love cooking it, or want to learn more about where your fish comes from, you'll find it all here on the Seafood Matters podcast. Today we have the privilege of hosting Dr. Mark Dickey-Colas, the Chair of the Advisory Committee of the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea, ICES, to discuss fisheries management and stock assessment. Shedding light on how quotas are calculated, Mark explains how seasonality is factored into the science of stock assessment. We also discuss how unreported and unregulated catches are accounted for in the realms of fishery science. Join us as we journey through the geography of sea areas, delving into the factors that influence quota assessments for different species. ICES, the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea, carries out about 200 bits of advice that we give to governments, and that's mostly based on stock assessments, about 100 of the bits of advice. And the stock assessments look at the information, the data that comes from fishing industry and also from surveys, and puts it all together. And we look at how quickly the fish are dying, and we look at the general number of fish that uh, are in the, in the uh, system as a whole. Um, the other hundred or so, we actually use what we call data-limited approaches, which aren't really stock assessments in terms of the old-fashioned type, but they're based on what trends can we detect from things like survey information alone, rather than using the catches as well. And, and how do you go about that? Are you get the vessels at sea or do you, are you on board fishing boats? Or? Personally, myself, I'm extremely land-based. Um, my job is now to work and oversee the entire system, which produces the 240 pieces of annual advice that come through. But the network as a whole is over 3,000 scientists working with fishing industry and working with institutes to gather all the information, data, and the catch statistics and, and uh, other relevant things, such as plankton and um, TV surveys. Could you give us an example of some of those 250 pieces of annual advice? What on earth is that? What on earth is that is the... It's uh, the classic ones are, for instance, once a year for Northern Shelf Cod. Uh, we, we give the advice to Norway, UK and EU, which feeds into all their different policies. Uh, another one might be uh, for such as Spurdog, which is a bit data limited, and that feeds into all of the organizations in the Northeast Atlantic because they're so widespread. Another piece of advice could be the bycatch of dolphins in the Bay of Biscay or the Baltic Sea by fishing industry and, and other organizations and other um, 
activities that are ongoing. So it's, it's, a, it's a real mix of stuff uh, that comes through. But about, about 200 of the 240 focus very much on what we call the fishing opportunities advice. And you're talking about on a global perspective or European? I'm talking North Atlantic, Northeast Atlantic. The ICES advisory area goes from the Baltic Sea to the Arctic to the Azores, and in the case of salmon all, and eel, all the way over to the uh, USA and Canadian coast, and certainly around Greenland as well. Yes, that's interesting, Mark. A thing that I often find fishermen, like, I, I, it's, I'll rephrase it, fishermen tell me, but it confuses me, and I just wonder how they handle it in their log when they're logging it. But when you're saying they're the North Atlantic, they're like a boats fishing at Rockall. Some species can, if they just say the, to me, let's say we're we're out in the we're out at, on Rockall at Rockall on a fishing boat. We've just hauled our net. We have multi-species in the, in the net, and when it's coming to the, if there were, say, for example, monkfish and cod and haddock in the same net in the same fishing area at the same time, and yet they have to be recorded differently. One would maybe be west of Scotland, and another would be Rockall. Yeah, that's based on our understanding of the biology of those organisms, where the fish are likely, how much they are going to migrate, or, or and also how they interbreed. So, for instance, in the North Atlantic, all of the eel are one stock, and yet all of the salmon come from different rivers. And in the case of, for instance, hake and blue whiting, we're assuming there's one large biologically distinct stock across the whole area. And in the case of some of the flatfish, for instance, we're assuming there's a lot less movement and they're much more associated with specific areas. So you will catch them in your nets mixed together. But actually the life histories uh, can be quite different of those organisms. And that's why they come out in advice by stocks. It is a weakness in our system. You're right in highlighting that because actually what fisheries management is trying to do is manage fisheries. We don't manage fish stocks. And yet we give advice on the basis of fish stocks. And that is a, is a, is a, is a real conundrum for us. It's that we need to move to a system where the fleets and the gears are, are managed rather than those stocks themselves. I'd like to ask you how scientists determine the territorial history of a lemon sole or a monkfish, which part of the fish tells you where it's from? Well, um, we're assuming that it's in a place because that's, well, it's caught somewhere where it, it, it should be. Um, the, it, these things do change, like mackerel running off, uh, off to Iceland and Greenland. But generally, we, we look at overall, it's, this goes back to where the fisheries began and how the stock structure was built up. In 2009, I published a paper on the genetic structure of stocks in the North Atlantic. 
uh, with a chap called Rees. And from that, we, we showed that historically, the original stocks were based on the catch statistics. And then as the biology became better and better known, we managed to adapt those labels of stocks to those life histories. So we know a, a, a really good local fish is a dab. A dab hardly moves at all. And if you put a dab next to a place, they look quite similar, but place move a huge amount. Something a bit similar with whiting and cod. Cod move a huge amount we, 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 from the biology. We, we assume that uh, the, uh, the whiting don't move as much as the cod. So those are the things that we're taking into account in those situations. And now in the last five to 10 years, we have a large number of genetic studies going on. The pelagic industry have paid for a huge amount of work on horse mackerel. Um, and there's ongoing work on the herring stock structure across from the Baltic all the way over to Iceland. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of work going on to try and confirm or disprove these stock structures. Certainly at ICES, for the last 15 years, uh, with the United Kingdom and with the EU, we're pushing very hard that the advice needs to be what we call more mixed fisheries based. And that's because, as, as you well know, if, if you have a lot of haddock in the North Sea and you have a limitation caused by the cod, you're not going to give the right management advice based on uh, only cod when you have a need to catch haddock as well. So what went wrong is we became focused quite heavily on assuming that the system is fixed and the system can be managed by only trying to manage each individual fish stock um, through some specific lever of fisheries management. And that can't work because almost all of our fisheries are mixed fisheries. And all of our fisheries have impacts on the ecosystem and benefits from the ecosystem. And there's no way in a single stock approach that we can really move forward. And certainly with climate change, that's, that's going to get even trickier. I mean, the spread of hake, uh, no one has that uh, sort of on their radar 15, 20 years ago, did they? That you're going to have so much hake coming around Scotland. So all of those things are, are an assumption that everything in the system is fixed, and it's not. Regarding your comment there about climate change, the way you just said that, you've almost suggested climate change is something that's just started. There's always been climate change. Yeah, but the, these temperature increases are really quite radical that we're seeing now. I mean, we've just been through 2023 with this rampant heat wave across the North Atlantic. Okay. Uh, and we see it in the plankton, we see it in the fish. Uh, that these are, these are unprecedented changes. Um, don't get confused though. I see a lot of people saying that the arrival of bluefin tuna is due to climate mm -hmm. change. But bluefin tuna have been around these the islands of the United Kingdom for, for, for centuries. And in fact, they come and go the whole time. Um, so the heating of the water would help the tuna, but we, we've had periods in the 1950s and the 1930s when there were lots of bluefin tuna mm -hmm. uh, around. Mm -hmm. Do you agree, I've always been my thought, Mark, that when you say there about multi-species, 
I often think the, the our own Scotland particularly, but maybe we'll say the UK, is, must be one of the biggest multi-species fisheries in the world. I've actually heard you say that before, Jim, and I'm not, I'm not sure that's true. Nor am I. Because fishermen in the Mediterranean would be aghast to hear you say yeah. that. And in, the, and in the Caribbean and Hawaii, um, they, they really are exceptionally multi-species. We are multi-species and have mixed fisheries, but we're, we're not quite in the same league as the Med or the uh, Caribbean or Hawaii or, or some parts of uh, South Asia. The fishermen in the Caribbean refer to the North Atlantic as a dead grey fishing area compared to what's available in the North Pacific and in the Caribbean. It's it's it they, they feel they've been graced with the law gods with what's available to them here compared to what they perceive happens up north. And if you take the cellular organisms all the way through to the actual fish, I think you'll find that it's in quite a number of degrees more in the warmer waters compared to the North Atlantic. Would you agree with that, Mark, or do you think that it's um, something else? Am I perceiving this wrong? Is the Caribbean abundant compared to the North Atlantic? Yeah, yeah. There's more species that are available to fish in those, in those kind of regions. What we're lucky to have in the northern, whether that be New Zealand and Chile or up in the North Atlantic, we have extremely high biomass single species which are there, which we can uh, utilize and work with. Um, but that's not to deny that many of our bottom trawl fisheries and others are very mixed and do take a, a large range of species, yeah. which should be celebrated. I, I'm still not going away completely on my view because I, yes, I've been in the Mediterranean and countries like that, but maybe what I think more, you'll see local fishing close in shore and they're getting very small fish for their booyah bases and the sprats and the buccaronis, all that type of thing, but to get to get so many mature species of, of different species fully mature, I don't often see that many places. Well, in the Med, the challenge there is they're fishing too hard and not letting those fish get mature. If they were unfished, you would get much better yields and much more mature fish there. Um, so I don't think that's an indication of an ecological or biological difference, but it's an indication that the, the fishing pressure is too high. Um, and, and that results in this this paucity of larger, more mature fish, I think. Because those small fish have to come from somewhere, so there have to be some mature fish there. Mark, going on to the proposal for cod, your ICs are suggesting a 17% reduction. And I think it's the North Sea. And <clears throat> the concern with a lot of fishermen it's, it was a 60%, 63% increase last year, 17% drop this year. They don't ever see that volatility. And the, the problem they felt last year was 63% in 
sounds good, but it's a, a from, going from such a low point as 63% of nothing is nothing type of thing. And now to, it's, what, what's your feelings on that? Well, the, the, the case of cod is, is quite a challenging one for fishers, for the scientists, and for the managers as well. We have shown uh, scientifically that, in fact, the, the whole structure of how we were addressing cod in, around the British Isles um, was incorrect in that there was no such thing as the North Sea cod stock, and there was no such thing as the West of Scotland stock. They're one stock that comes and goes, that moves in between. So we went through a multi-year, I think it's over a four-year process, and that also involved a number of workshops with the fishing industry on, um, in 2022 and 2023, uh, working with Mike Park and, and others um, to try and look at how the fishermen's information feeds into what was to become the brand new stock assessment for what we're calling Northern Shelf Cod. Now, our problem is that we now have a brand new stock assessment and that does result in volatility. And we also have a very fixed management system and our new stock assessment doesn't feed well into the existing management system because the existing management system is still assuming that there's West of Scotland and there's still North Sea and the Skagarat Kattegat and the Southern English Channel and the English Channel are, are not mixing. And that gets rather tricky for us all when we try and look for solutions. So I'm not going to in any way say that the advice for less cod to be taken um, is in any way uh, wrong from our point of view. What, what we're struggling with is that the management system can't as yet find a solution to deal with the new way that the, the evidence is coming through. And it's very difficult, and this is a regular feature, we know that individuals in different parts of different seas see dynamics which are different from the overall population as a whole. Uh, and the Shetland cod is a really, really good example. Yes, there are large catches of cod around Shetland, but overall we're seeing a real paucity of cod in other parts of an area where we think, we, we know, the cod are mixing and integrating together. It would appear that northern quote has been offset against southern quota. Is there any way you can see to rectify the disparities between the management and what the fishing boats are actually experiencing? That question is a question for the managers, I'm afraid, and they need to work with fishers and with scientists to find a solution. It's not the job of ICs in any way to propose management to propose management or to propose solutions that are not coming from the people impacted and affected and managed. Fishermen around Shetland feel it's not very working out very accurate as far as the quote is concerned because there's abundance of cod 
around Shetland and but they're been cut because there's there's less about the southern part. What about cutting it the separating it so that there are quotas for different areas? This this touches a bit on the seasonality of this of of the populations because if you have cod which are caught in one season in one area but moving around another, and we know that the cod populations are, are distinct at spawning time, but if you have cod which are moving around to the other areas and being impacted by fisheries there, then that does cause a challenge in terms of how do you manage it. But I think you touch on a really important point that it's crucial that management is effective and it works with the fishers and with the scientists and all the other knowledge providers to ensure that the, the management objectives are met. And the management objectives are very clearly, and I'm going to use that horrible phrase, maximum sustainable yield. So that is about maximizing catches. And if you have a local problem in that you have a lot of fish, but it's in a larger stock where we're saying that there aren't enough fish, you've got to find management solutions. And that's where we need innovation. And that's where we need communication and conversations between scientists, between fishers, between managers. Because as you said, this currently is, is very, very difficult, especially for those who see catch, potential catch, that they can't utilize. Let me give you a quote, Mark, from people that we were, you mentioned earlier, Mike Park. So it obviously shows there's a breakdown in the between the managers and whatnot, and your yourselves NFA, NFA the Northern Fishing Alliance, as you know. It is concerning the Northern Fishing Alliance members that ICES has appeared to adopt the role of managers, which is clearly not their function the role of ICES to provide advice rather than to determine management measures to reduce the risk to stocks. Do you know what? I think that statement I agree with. It's not our job to be managers. It's our job to provide the evidence. And that indication, it, that statement shows that we have a problem. And the problem is that we're not finding ways together to find a, a way to exploit the, the stocks in the right way, particularly the cod. So we, we ran the workshop with uh, the with all the, well, not all, but representatives of, of cod fishers in 2022 and 2023. We then took that information into our, our new stock assessment approach. And then, unfortunately, we found that it was very difficult to apply that information into the current system. And the current system is based on a framework that we have agreed with managers overall, whether that be the UK or Norway or the EU, and that's our framework. And we work very hard to try and adapt to this framework that we, that we have published and all of the people that pay for our advice agree to. And yet we've ended up in a situation where 
there are some people rightly complaining that they cannot utilize catch they see because the stock is considered much broader than those local areas now. That was quite a waffly answer, but it, it is about having flexibility in management somehow to deal with the knowledge and also the expectations of the industry. Do you feel that the, with what connection you've had recently and gone on to the COD Symposium, is that, do you feel that that's been a success? Well, certainly the goodwill and the conversation that led to what we call the, the Northern Shelf Cod benchmark process, we, we view as a success because we, uh, sh we, in, we found it extremely useful to take the information from the fishing industry and also to hear their experiences and, and bring that together with the quantitative science that we're, we're doing as well. What isn't a success is the way in which our advice is then used in a system which is so constraining. And that's, that's the real challenge, I think. And where do we go with it? How do we take that forward? You have to take that forward by having a, a dialogue with the managers, the fishers and the scientists. And, and unfortunately, it's complicated because you've got Norway, you've got the UK and you've got the EU now, all with uh, fishing nation rights, um, all of them uh, trying to ensure that their fishermen get the maximum that they can based on their national positions. So they come in with a negotiation stance that we cannot in any way lose catch for our fishers. So it's already setting up a combative um, uh, environment. But the only way to move forward is to say we need to address how to manage, considering that this is now considered a large stock um, how do we manage it best in terms of the objectives, the international objectives of MSY and the precautionary approach? We recently spoke with Dr. Michael Kaiser from Harriet Watt University. And we got into the complexities of you basing your findings on scientific data and then being asked to build in the anecdotal experiences of fishermen he suggested that the development of visual technologies, cameras on every boat above the nets and the hold rooms might decrease that distance between anecdotal fishermen experience and scientific data. How do you foresee the application of technology help in this situation? I, I, I think technology will create more data. Yeah, that's, that's perfectly fine. But what technology doesn't do is bring together the experiences of each individual fisher. Um, if, if someone is in one place and sees and feels and remembers something in the past, that isn't picked up by technology. So improving the databases, improving the amount of data flowing into those helps all of us in terms of the quantitative science. But what that doesn't do is help deal with the values, with the experiences, and the feelings of people. And sometimes we get the science wrong. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Um, 
A good one is mackerel in the Northeast Atlantic. ICs uh, continued with a stock assessment approach uh, a number of years ago where the industry as a whole shouted, you're, you're wrong. You're, you're not a, we are seeing more fish than you claim. And we said, no, the numbers say this. And they shouted louder and louder. And we ran a workshop in 2019, which charted a way forward to bring in more information and more uh, of the understanding of the system as a whole. And we did change the mackerel stock assessment in response to that. And those kind of things can't be dealt with by tech technology alone. You've got to work with the fishers. Another really good one is uh, blue whiting, where back in the 1990s, ICE said blue whiting is going to collapse. It can't cope with this level of catch. And yet, um, the, ca the catches kept coming and the stock didn't collapse. And in fact, it was years later we realized that there's this dynamic change with the ecosystem which impacts blue whiting. And so we were thinking that everything was stationary across the whole time series. Um, but in fact, uh, the productivity was changing over time. And once we listened to people who said there's still blue whiting out there, a lot of blue whiting, we, we realized that in fact our projections of what was going to happen was considering it was lowly, uh, in a low production state. And in fact, it was in a high production state. So, so new technology helps, new data helps, but we need to find a way to bring together the quantitative scientific understanding from uh, the likes of people like me and my organization with the experiences and the stories and narratives, and I mean stories in a powerful way, not a diminutive way, um, uh, to bring that together uh, to, to ensure sustainable fisheries. You use the words feel, experience, and remember. Now, orthodox science doesn't really have categories for feelings, but you seem to be quite focused on building in the fishermen's feelings. How, the question is, how on earth do you start doing that? Where would you even start? I use those words on purpose and I knew you would react. Um, I think it's important that we understand that we manage fisheries and fisheries are people. And those people, every person has something of value to add to the system. And ICES has taken, despite being labeled the way we are with our databases and our conservative methods and our obsession with quantitative mathematics, which is the underlying, that has helped us bring down fishing effort and increase catches around the North Atlantic hugely. But we can do better. And you asked about methods. And recently, we've had two big workshops. One with Natalie Steins chairing and Beata Borgstadt in, uh, from Norway and the Netherlands. And this was on developing guidance for ensuring integrity of scientific information submitted to ICES. And they looked at how do we ensure that when we start broadening the, the sources of our information and data, that we ensure that it stays, it, it maintains integrity. And then the second workshop we had just a few months ago was run by Steve Mackinson uh, from the Northern Pelagic, uh, oh no, that's the wrong group, from uh, the Pelagic uh, Association in Scotland, and Niels Hinson, who works now for the PFA. And that was a workshop on accounting for fishers and other stakeholders' perceptions 
in the dynamics of fish stocks. And those two workshops together are, are part of our initial steps as ICs in trying to develop those methods. I think it's better that if you want to learn about some of the methods, perhaps you should speak to Steve or to, to Niels. Um, but it's certainly important. And me as chair of the advisory committee, I have pushed really hard for this, particularly with the likes of some of the ACTS. And I know the UK now isn't part of the ACTS system, but many of the ACTS, the advisory councils, are saying, look, we're seeing different things or we're seeing the same things. I mean, famously, we had the North Sea survey that went on for quite a while, um, which began, I think, in the early 2000s and went through to, I think, about 2010. And there we found the signals from fishers were broadly the same as the signals in the data that the scientists were collecting. Wonderful. I need to ask you to do something editorially here. We've, you guys have talked about two people now who, who we don't have any context for. I'd just like you to quickly answer these two questions, Mark, for my edit. First of all, could you tell me who Mike Park is, please? Mike Park is the head of the Scottish Whitefish uh, Producers Organisation, based mostly in Scotland there. You mentioned Natalie Steins. Who's Natalie Steins? Natalie Steins is a senior researcher at the Dutch Fisheries Institute, which is now part of Wageninger Marine Research. And forgive me for saying it as Wageninger, you would say it as Wageningen, um, but I'm Dutch and so I, I put the little twang in there. But she specializes in uh, human dimension in fisheries and is in fact just now has been elected the chair of the steering group on human dimension in ICES. I'm so glad I asked you that because we're getting in touch with her for an episode. You, sh you really should. Oh, we She's will. fantastic. Mark, I would like to ask your views on whether they're in tune with a lot of the fishermen here. For as a conservation matter, closed areas We've, it's almost like history has shown us in the, from the past to now, an area that's n not been fished, nobody ever gets fish in it again. The issue of closed areas is a, is a very interesting one because all of the governments have made commitments now to have 30% closed well, or protected by 2030 and 10% uh, to be highly protected. Now, the evidence comes and goes as to the effectiveness of those measures in terms of increasing fish productivity, and it really does depend on the size of those closures. I know you've had Ray Hilborn uh, on your podcast series, and Ray has some quite clear views and statements, and there are also many people who go to the other extreme which say any closed area will give a fishery huge value. But that doesn't necessarily mean that will happen. We're, we're seeing also, and I'm going to broaden it from the marine protected area issue to the, the wind farms. I mean, I'm, I'm fed up hearing people saying wind farms are good for fish. And I'm saying, well, fish aggregate around them. It doesn't mean the productivity is increasing. The jury, in my mind, is still out. 
as to whether wind farms result in greater opportunity for fishing for others beyond those areas from which they've been excluded. Um, and we need a lot more study and a lot more understanding of the areas, of, of the dynamics of closed areas in relation to fish production and the opportunities to, to have a sustainable fishery around them. So that's a really fuzzy answer, but I really think the jury's out. Um, For the sake of the audience, my father's question to you, his proposition was that when you close a fishing area, fish are never caught again. As an outsider looking in, I would make the assumption that by closing a fish area, you would be creating an environment with unintruded breeding and you would see an amplification in stocks. Can you explain why that doesn't occur? Well, it might occur, but it depends on the size of the area closed. Um, I, I know you, you mentioned Mike Kaiser already, but the, the experience around the Isle of Man, where I also was based for three years, um, uh, is that the closed areas for scallops help. You know, and we we see that um, we have the the whole issue of Norway pout in the North Sea. We have the sprat boxes. We have some of the others. We we also see the quite poor example of the place box in the Southern North Sea, where we had a closed area, where actually over time the place moved out of it. Um, so there's almost no discernible benefit from the place box. And I'm going to get attacked for saying there's no discernible benefit from the place box, but the place moved out. They, as the waters warmed, the place, the, the place box was too shallow and too warm, and the place moved out of it. So there was no protection, and yet that area, as you said, remains closed. You're saying they found a better place. Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> would you, would would you agree, Mark, that the windsock is the exact same? What's the windsock? The windsock, sorry. The windsock, sorry, it's an area that was closed for, it must be 14 or 15 years on the west side of Shetland. Oh, that, I don't know the details of that one, I'm afraid, Jim. So another example, which is, is less applicable in the UK at the moment, but uh, is the EU, is the, the big Ferrari about the vulnerable marine ecosystems, the VMEs which have been introduced uh, by the European Union. And lots of uh, organizations are saying that the evidence base is iffy, but the, the knowledge of the impact of fishing on those vulnerable marine ecosystems is quite strong. So there's a, there's a degree of what is, what is the purpose and what is the evidence base required to close an area. Uh, and that's, that's a tricky one. Very tricky. The area I was coming at with my question to you, it's just my, my, my past. I originally was born and brought up in a fishing village called Helmsdale. It's on the Murray Firth, which is the east coast of Scotland. And that relatively small firth for small sea area, you, if you went down one coast and up the other, Wick, Leibster, Helmsdale and then go along the south coast which is Burghead, Hopeman, Lossiemouth, Macduff, Banff and right out to Fraserborough. I, as, a, as a child and going up until the 70s and that there would have been hundreds of boats 
fishing out of all that harbours every day and now there's not there's not one boat and anybody that does go in and try it never gets a fish i i think there's there's a there's a there's an issue that we need to be aware of that a lot of these closed areas need to be need two things you need really clear management objectives as to why they're closed and sometimes that's lacking and also you need some if you have closed an area you need to have some monitoring to understand what the impact and implications of that closure has been and that again is a a really weak area in terms of the evidence base coming through and we have so many closed areas which are put in to apparently help and yet there's no money spent there's no understanding either on the ecology that's happened that's changed after those areas are closed or how it's impacted people and what i think you i would say to you jim is you can't just close an area without realizing that you need to keep monitoring and understanding the repercussions of that closure so i'm agreeing with you um, if you don't have the evidence base we can't comment on on what's happening and, and why people are experiencing yeah. you see the concern with a lot of fishermen going even going back to brush on the cut in the cod quota and take it forward for, for, with uh, to talk about the, the, some of the government measures, as you rightly say about wind farms, marine protected areas, highly protected marine protected areas. The concern for the fishermen at this end is there's serious concern about their viability. So it's not just a case of greed and trying to catch more. There is serious, serious concern about the viability of the Scottish fleet. I agree with you. I completely agree with you. The 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 uh, the forcing out, and I use the word forcing because there there is the objective, the high political objective for renewable energy. There is the biodiversity objective as well. All of those do challenge the people who are making their livelihoods from the sea. And, and that is a real political challenge for people. And in the same way that we always lose out, or I say we, those of us who work in fisheries overall, we were always trumped by oil and gas. They always, had, they always came top. And now we're always going to be trumped by wind. There's, it's, it's very difficult. And people are being, having their voices taken away. That's my personal opinion, by the way. I'm not speaking for ISIS at all by saying that. Well, I 100% agree with you there. And even in our small area, which I don't expect you to know the names of the grounds, uh, Mark, but if we go to the east side of our the county I'm living in, Caithness, we have what is called the Beatrice oil field. And now that is it's covered in wind farms, that was that in a fisherman's term in the past that was a smith bank one of the most prolific fishing areas in the east coast of scotland now there's a proposed wind farm uh, farms on the north of the county north of caithness 
in a fisherman's world that is the stormy bank and so there with this for all the size of the sea is a way the fisherman looks at it why why come and put your wind farms right on our gardens our fishing grounds I'll give you another example, a bit bigger, Dogger Bank. Very prolific fishing ground is about to be covered or in the process of becoming a wind farm, yeah. Do you feel that this situation is because of the four-year electoral system where people are making investments based on their four-year stint, not on the next 50 years of what's best for fisheries and wind farms? Is it restricted by that political system? I'm speaking now not as a stock assessor. I'm speaking as someone who's observing the fisheries system and the, the annual round of negotiations is actually the biggest driver in terms of fisheries. And that takes all the attention and it's almost impossible to get the attention of a fisheries manager in Northern Europe between September to December. They're gone. You've lost them. So you can't have any conversation with them because they're busy doing the annual rounds of fisheries negotiations. So, of course, there's no voice for them for some of the year. Um, they are away at their own tables, busy negotiating quotas. So I'm not sure it, if it's the electoral system or what, but somehow the voice of the people impacted by decisions of what, how to manage the sea uh, and manage the space of the sea is not coming through if you prioritise their livelihoods and their communities and their culture. If, however, if you want to prioritise renewable energy and wind, then you're not going to listen to their voice anyway. That's a very valid point. Could I go forward, Mark, and it was another real concern for fishermen, genuine concern for Scottish fishermen just now, which I'm sure you'll be probably aware of, is the amount of unrecorded and regulated and monitored fish that has been caught by, let's say, non-UK boats. And there doesn't, there's no monitoring when they're landing they're not boarded at sea there is completely out of control and fishermen Scottish fishermen under the tight rain and looking at losing cod again next year this is all happening in their around their their fishing grounds and it's we're seeing it with our own eyes as they're landing in in our in our markets and the other part of as, as well as the annoyance for our fishermen is how will that what kind of impact is that going to have on your figures if they're not if you're not getting them the figures well i i can't i'm going to disappoint you i can't really comment on that because we don't have evidence of that coming through and the observers that we have uh monitor catches from and the only boats that are allowed to fish in the waters are the boats that have traditionally done so um, for instance with the uh, non-european boats are certainly not allowed to be brought in 
uh, to European waters and UK waters unless there's further agreement with coastal states. So I, I can't really comment further on that. I do think we have to be very careful though, and I'm going to point a finger here. It's very easy to say other people are doing it, but we don't have to have long-term memories to remember the mackerel situation through the 1990s and 2000s, when we had extra pipes and new keys brought in for secret shipping of mackerel from Scottish boats. And I know those Scottish fishermen who were doing it, and they hold their hands up and say, yes, we did. And some of them were prosecuted. We know that. So we have to be very careful when pointing fingers, because it's not always the other side. Uh, all of us have some degree of challenge, uh, but I can't comment on current behavior because we don't have evidence for that, sorry. Accepting that historically Scottish fishermen were up to all sorts of nonsense, but also accepting that there are a lot of Portuguese, French and Spanish boats landing in Shetland in the north of Scotland unmonitored. You would never see these figures coming through there's no track record or logbook for illegal landings. And this is what I think Jim was getting at. Oceana reported four months ago that they expect the figure to be as high as 40%. Even if that figure's doubled, they're suspecting 40% of the fish stocks in the North Atlantic are being caught and landed illegally. Is there a number that you put into your calculations to account for it, or it does it not even come into your reckoning? Our estimates, and I can't comment on the specifics, I, I can't comment on who is landing what, where in Shetland or off Donegal or wherever, or, or Newland, but the issue is that where we have evidence of differences between the official catch and the uh, actual catch, then we do our best to incorporate those those bits of information into it. I, I started my career in Belfast in the 1990s, and we went down to the auctions every week, and we counted the number of boxes, and then we looked at what was reported, and we readjusted the catch to account. Now, as scientists, we got into trouble, and you can imagine in Northern Ireland, it got a little bit dicey. But um, we, we gave estimates that were different from the official catches. And, and that happens across the ISIS system. We have different countries have different ways to, to bring that together. Now, I can't talk about the specifics of what's happening in now in different places, but we try our best to get the right levels of catch to come through in the, in the data flow. I feel that thoroughly answers what you asked there, Jim, and me too. I was expecting a different answer because there are enormous fishing gr groups of boats, sometimes include, you know, hundreds of them on forums and social media. And there is a virtual war going on in the sense that the acquisitions being made by some of the northern fishermen against the, for the, the illegal landings, I mean, it, they're talking about thousands upon thousands of tons of fish, not just a discrepancy in four boxes of cod on a day boat. The only solution I can see is to have 24-hour monitoring on every port. If a boat lands, its catch is monitored. And I can't accept the fact that it's too costly to do that when we're talking about correct fish assessment for our generational sustainability 
Now, I'm not going to comment on specifics of what is being claimed at the moment because we don't have evidence. Oh, we don't anyway. Um, and but what I would say is just in the last month, the European Union has passed new legislation in terms of the uh, control and enforcement and the greater use of BMS for small boats as well, for electronic monitoring on big boats and all of that coming through. So, and I know that Scotland has is bringing in some extremely tough electronic monitoring requirements for boats that come into Scottish waters. So there, there are mechanisms and, and initiatives coming forward. But, uh, yeah. We actually asked the question incorrectly because we should have asked you what solutions are in the offing to address that problem rather than what the problem is. So this is really encouraging that the Scottish government, who do come under quite a lot of flack from the fishing industry, are actually making steps towards monitoring all landings or getting as close to that as they can. For all boats landing in Scottish waters, would that include foreign landings? Yeah, my understanding is for certain, uh, for access rights to Scottish waters, there's a, a number of regulations that are coming in that will require um, certain uh, certain other mechanisms to be there. And I, I can't remember the details, but I understand that some of that is uh, electronic monitoring and uh, other elements. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens because they've already, the Scottish government already have the... Um, Marine Scotland in place and their officers monitor local boats but never open, never monitor the foreign boats but also there's an extra complication because a lot of them when I class them to start with as non-UK it's because quite a lot of them are have got the British flag they're registered in this country but they're not owned or crewed by this country. Well, that's 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 a that's not a question for me as chair of the advisory committee, but that's a management question for people in Edinburgh and London. So, yeah. No, Mark, I know I, I totally appreciate that and respect what you're saying. What I and I wasn't trying to pin anything on you. What I f meant and and did ask was. How how can that impact on 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 the figures that you do work with? Well, as I said, we try our best to estimate the actual catch coming through, and we are not naive to the situation that official figures may be slightly different in certain circumstances, and the scientists across the whole ICES region actually have different mechanisms in different countries to try and address those differences. On your, on your assessments, uh, Mark, do you, what's your view when you say the, the different things that you're, you're looking at? What's your views on mesh size? And do you believe, in th which some scientists I speak to don't, predator stocks and non-predator stocks. I've heard you comment on this in previous podcasts and I find the concept a little difficult, Jim, I'm sorry, because all fish are predators. Every fish is a predator. A herring is a predator. A herring is like a zebra that eats lion cubs because cod eggs are in the water um, and cod larvae and they're all eaten 
by other fish, planktivores. Cod themselves are cannibalistic, and we include that in our models, um, particularly in the uh, in the northern cods around Svalbard, etc. We have specific models that work uh, on the basis that cod eat themselves. So the concept of a predator stock and a non-predator stock, I think, doesn't capture the real confusion that happens out in our oceans. We're used to thinking terrestrially of sheep and cows and wolves, etc. Doesn't happen that way in the ocean. Everything eats everything at different life stages, yeah. But yeah, we, we have a hake in our head and hake are huge and big teeth. And then we have a, a, a basking shark. A basking shark is eating, in fact, more fish at earlier life stages than a hake would. This is fascinating, Mark, because we have heard this proposition of a predatorial hierarchy, but I do, I've always suspected that we're projecting terrestrial values into the ocean because the way I've been brought up is there are two apex predators, the orca and the great white shark, whereby nothing lives on the great white shark and nothing lives on the orca, but they do kill each other. I find that a great refreshing answer because the next person we have on that talks about this predatorial hierarchy, we get to pop that to them. I think it's very, I think, I think that's great as an answer. What's your thoughts there, Jim, that there is no predatorial hierarchy? I respect, and that's why I asked the question, and I, I've had, you know, obviously everybody has different views and and uh, I think it's in a previous podcast I remember asking Jan Christensen and uh, from Iceland and he was doing some surveys in the North Sea and it was mentioned to him about whiting but he gutted some whiting and not one not one of whiting that they gutted had any immature fish in its gut I have beginning of my career in the Irish Sea, worked on fish surveys, specialising a lot in stomach sampling. We would find whiting with juvenile whiting inside them. And in fact, we would often find a whiting with a whiting with a whiting inside them. Um, So that's very clear. And cod, just the same. And uh, yeah, the only one which was always different was, of course, haddock, because they they specialise in a very different food type, if we're talking about those gadoids. Have you found any bizarre artefacts or items inside? I haven't, I'm afraid. I've just found rubbish and fish. There's a fisherman in Wick. I think it's a Boyandro he was on board. And they gutted a cod, fully mature cod. And there was an empty Coke can in the stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Was there really now? Was it Diet Coke or was it just regular, reg, regular Coke? He wasn't a discerning cod. <laughs> okay. It's an important question. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Mark, if you're, you mentioned it earlier, I'd just like to take it a wee bit forward. You mentioned season, seasonal. Is the seasonality come into your reckoning when you're doing your assessments? Yes and no. Um, firstly, there are a number of stocks that we work with where 
um, we do quarterly stock assessments. So a good example being things like sand deals or the whip out. And there it's important because the productivity and they're so short-lived. Another seasonal issue which does come into the, uh, the stock assessments as a whole is actually where and when we survey them. So we're catching and we're looking, sorry, we're looking at the catch data and we're looking at our own surveys and also increasingly some surveys run by industry. And actually the time of year of that survey will impact our assessment of the abundance in that survey as well. And also if the seasonality is shifting. So we take those into account. The other thing that we take into account in terms of seasonality is things like uh, the timing of where in the year that the fish spawn. So a classic being herring, which of course are spawning in the autumn. So we try to estimate our biomass for North Sea herring uh, at the time of year, which is generally the autumn, rather than the standard, which is the beginning of the year. So we take those into account in terms of seasonality. Um, but if I haven't addressed a seasonal issue that you think is, what else is there? The, the reason I ask is because it's been said to me just, well, once recently, a cousin of mine, he almost 50 years ago, I don't know which scientist, but they wanted to do a survey and fit, fit, go, go for haddock. I can't remember the time of year, but he said to them, you'll not catch haddock just now. And they said, oh yeah, we need to get our figures, we need to do it away they went. And that was over, certainly gone on for 40 or 50 years ago. And only last year I heard this, almost the same thing from a Shetland fisherman who's seemingly with herring. And they wanted to, scientists wanted to do a survey and and he said to them you won't catch you'll you'll not get any herring where, where you're going and what you want to do you won't catch any herring and says oh but we need to go you, Jim this is a very very important point if if you're going to build up a time series of of abundance through a survey it's a relative time series. So if it's generally a very low abundance, but it varies at that low level, that still is a time series that might be of value. But you've also touched on the issue of what's appropriate gear to survey. Uh, and for instance, I'm going to use a, an unusual example, anchovy in the North Sea. We know that anchovy are picked up a lot in bottom trawl surveys done by the scientists every year. However, when we do an acoustic survey of the North Sea, we don't see anchovy. Now, that we think is due to the fact that the anchovy are coming inshore and spawning in a way at a time when the acoustic survey is inappropriate. And yet, in the Bay of Biscay, almost all of our advice on anchovy is done using acoustic survey results because the timing works very well. Now, the North Sea acoustic survey is targeting herring and sprat. So not getting anchovy is a problem, but actually our main priority is herring and sprat biomass. 
So yes, seasonality matters, and it's all about designing those surveys with the right gear and the right timing. But if you have a long time series and enough catch, you will get a signal. You mentioned anchovies. Would that not indicate something about the climate? <laughs> ah, we're back to the bluefin tuna question. We, we anchovy again, a bit like bluefin tuna, has come and gone in the North Sea. Um, and also in the Skagerrat and Kattegat, getting right round into the Baltic Sea. And it is very definitely associated with warmer periods in those areas. And I've published a load of papers when I was in the Netherlands on this subject. Um, the, the anchovy need a certain temperature to be able to overwinter in those regions. And the other thing with things like anchovy is we've shown genetically that, in fact, it's a local population that's going up and down. It's not a population from the Bay of Biscay or the southwest coming through into the southern North Sea. But yeah, absolutely. The ecosystem keeps changing. Going on from previous podcasts, one thing that fascinated me was, and I'm sure you'll make sense of it, but that same survey when Jan Christensen was in the North Sea, he was doing a, he had the, they were catching haddock, which as he classed, called them like herring, like the size of herring, it was small for a, from an, an excellent point of view. And he did an age test on them, and they were between four and five year old. And he said if that fish was caught in Iceland, it would have been two kilos. Lots of things are changing in our system overall. A, a good one is, is seeing how the maturity of whiting is, is declining. Let me get this the right way around. They are becoming more mature, smaller. And so things like that are happening in our system. Another one, which I'm going to take you way away from Scotland, is in the Baltic. Baltic sea cod is in real trouble because of the state of the Baltic. And we now have fish that are so small and so skinny, they're not fit for market anymore. And yet they're probably two, three, four years old. And if this was 20 years ago, they would be healthy, big fish ready for market fertility, but they're not anymore. And, and it's a real concern that in some areas this is happening. And it's only some species. And for instance, place is doing very well in the North Sea and the, the size of maturity isn't that changing. How on earth can a fish that's so skinny sustain spawn? How can that fish sustain young, or is that the threat? Um, that actually is, is one of the challenges. We, we do see that they are mature. these cod are also maturing younger and also giving off eggs, and there are new year classes coming in. But your question is, are they healthy year classes? This is a self-perpetuating thing. It's a, we don't know what's happening in the Baltic. Well, we kind of know. There's a mixture of eutrophication, the, the, the nutrients are too high and the oxygen is running out. We have parasites in the Baltic which are affecting the cod, uh, coming a, a lot from the seals. There's a whole host of things which are impacting the size of the fish there, but it's one of the most outrageous, uh, outrageous is the wrong word, um, clear documented systems uh, in decline. And it, it, it really, and the HELCOM, the environmental organization there, the governmental organization, has just published a report on the poor state of, of the sea there. And it has really impacted the fishing industry. And if you speak to Polish or Latvian fishermen, 
they really are uh, struggling. Mark, if I could take that a stage further, we see that sometimes, and I, it's really interesting, I could ask you, can you explain it? Just certain small areas around our shores where they'll catch fish and and the way we put it, it'll be in, just say this time of year, October, anything between September, October, November, where we'd be looking at our, fight, our fish in absolute primo condition. And we'll see some haddock and stuff, which you would almost swear was in, it was March and April when they had just spawned and out, completely out of condition. What causes that? I don't know. But we make these assumptions that they all spawn at the same time in the same place in the same way. That may not be the case. There might be these odd one or two. I mean, a classic is in herring. We see this dynamic between spring spawning and autumn spawning, and this changes over decades. Um, and uh, across all of the areas, this, this there is flexibility and change. But what why a particular fish is in a bad state could be the environment, could be parasites, could be uh, port feeding. You know, there's a host of things. Well, I would just like to, on behalf of the Seafood Matters podcast, I would just like to say a massive thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed, genuinely enjoyed speaking with you. And thank you, Jim. It's been very great talking to you all. So. And very similar, funny enough, to what I felt with Michael Kaiser in the previous podcast was the resounding message I'm getting ringing in my ears is that the importance oh, in you and I know the, for my the industry and scientists speaking together, and it's that we're getting that message coming through from all sides. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's crucial. Crucial.